Hey listeners, Tim Winkler here, your host of The Pair Program. We've got exciting news introducing our latest partner series, Beyond the Program. In these special episodes, we're passing the mic to some of our savvy former guests who are returning as guest hosts. Get ready for unfiltered conversations, exclusive insights, and unexpected twists as our alumni pair up with their chosen guest. Each guest host is a trailblazing expert in a unique technical field. Think data, product management, and engineering, all with a keen focus on startups and career growth. Look out for these bonus episodes dropping every other week, bridging the gaps between our traditional pair program episodes. So buckle up and get ready to venture beyond the program. Enjoy. Welcome to CTO Wisdom. My name is Eric Brook. This series will talk to leaders of technology at organizations. We'll understand their career, what was successful and what was not, and what they learned along the way. We'll also look at what the tech market is doing today. We'll understand where they gather their intelligence so they can grow and scale with their organizations. Um, today we're going to talk to Asanka and we're going to talk about um, his leadership through technology and his um, winding career journey and all of the things he's learned. Asanka, welcome. Good to be here. Could you give me the elevator pitch of yourself and what you're up to? Sure. I've spent uh, getting close to 25 years, I think it's a long time. Uh, of my career in software uh, and roles, starting as an engineer, as an intern working my way up through management uh, into exec roles, but always basically in uh, cloud software, enterprise SaaS, uh, e-commerce, uh, security, and more recently uh, in a venture firm as a portfolio CTO. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of different roles, a lot of different industries over the last 25 years. Awesome. Um, could you tell us a bit about your journey into technology? Sure. Um, so I kind of did not start on a path uh, straight into tech. Um, growing up as a, a Southeast uh, Asian uh, kid, uh, you know, being a doctor is kind of a, a principal journey that a lot of us get put on. And I think I was told from a very young age that was the path and uh, kind of working my way almost uh, without thinking towards that uh, all through school. Entered university studying uh, molecular genetics as a kind of precursor towards medicine. But once uh, after my first year, I spent the summer uh, in Sri Lanka and got a chance to volunteer a little bit uh, with my uncle, spent some time uh, with him as a, he's a doctor there and kind of realized like this is not a, this is not a job for me. Uh, you know, your, your good days as a doctor are good, but your bad days can be really bad. I mean, obviously, it's, it's I think one of the most important professions and Obviously, it comes with a lot of weight. Um, and I, I just didn't think that was for me. But the whole time, you know, I'd always been playing and tinkering around with computers since I got my Radio Shack, you know, Tandy XT computer back when I was in grade eight. And, you know, someone said, why don't you start spending time with that? So I switched over to computer science. And from there, I just fell in love with it, fell in love with building, fell in love with uh, writing code quickly realized in the computer science that I did not love any of the math or formal proof sides of computer science, but was just in love with soft, the software engineering side. And that's sort of how I indexed my time uh, and focused on that and moved into you know, loving computers and building. Cool. 
So um, when you, you started in science, were there aspects of science that you found helpful when you got to kind of like computers? I would definitely say the quantitative side of it. So your physics, chemistry, um, and calculus, obviously, subjects like that are very across all those subjects. Having that background is helpful because uh, ultimately, this, you know, computers are quantitative in, in a way. So I, I found that was generally helpful. I feel like the subjects that were less helpful, biology and things like that, which are a little bit more about memorization, even genetics, uh, those courses weren't particularly helpful. But I would say the quantitative classes were definitely useful as I moved over. Cool. So then tell us about your journey now. You're into kind of um, software engineering and technology. Um, what was that like for you? Yeah, so I was very fortunate in that the University of Toronto, where I went to school, had what was called a professional experience year program. So you got to do a 12 or 16 month internship. And so in 2000, I started an internship with a Canadian um, software startup uh, called Jana Systems that was doing web based uh, CRM. Uh, when I say web based, intranet based. So this is well before SaaS was a thing, but it was revolutionary because it was deployed in the browser and Customers didn't have to install, you know, Windows clients on across thousands of desktops. Uh, I got very lucky for a couple reasons. So this was May 2000. I was starting and just kind of right at the tipping point of stuff starting to break in the dot-com bust. And, you know, I had offers from JANA, IBM, and uh, Cisco Systems. And, you know, a lot of my friends were pushing me to go take IBM and Cisco. But this, you know, the startup environment, and I guess it's it's a very different world back then. I think today everyone knows all about startups, knows what it's like and exciting. But back in 2000, it was not nearly the same um, level of excitement or celebration around startups. And everyone was pushing me towards going to IBM. Uh, I ultimately turned IBM down. It worked out really well. And I got super lucky because, you know, six months later, IBM and Cisco and all those big companies, they were letting go of their interns. They were downsizing. Uh Sometimes you get you get really lucky in your career. And Jenna went incredibly well. We got acquired by Siebel Systems, which was the largest CRM vendor uh, in the world at the time. And I got to kind of continue my career there to, you know, now at a Silicon Valley owned company, uh, progressing my career. And uh, it was it was it was challenging, especially uh, in about 2002, Salesforce.com really came to market. and and for those who aren't familiar, they were really the first cloud company, in my opinion, of, of, of any real scale, delivering real software over the internet. And Siebel being the incumbent on-premise, uh, you know, it got quite heated, that competition. And they decided they had this team that they'd acquired, our team in Toronto. And they're like, why don't you guys figure out how to do this cloud thing? And it's one of those interesting things where, again, you get lucky in your career. I didn't get put on the most important project at the time. Everybody thought cloud was not really going to be a big deal. This is like a fad. This is for small businesses. No enterprises are going to want this. But I got to start figuring out cloud stuff, you know, back in 2002, um, before any of this stuff happened and just really, really lucky uh, to get that opportunity. Cool. What happened next? So after that, uh, you know, Kind of progressed up as an engineer, eventually reaching the level of a principal engineer uh, at Siebel. We got acquired by Oracle. So it's like a small fish that got swallowed by a bigger fish that got swallowed by, I guess, the biggest fish. Uh, I think no one was going to buy. I think we were, the joke we had was nobody was going to buy us now. We, we were pretty sure that with Oracle, that was kind of the end of the acquisition chain. 
But I continued to progress uh, as my career as an engineer. And then about 2007, 2008, um, I made a shift in my career. And that's when I first moved into management. Tell us what that was like. Um, yeah, so a couple of things that really drove that for me. One is, while I was a really good engineer, and when I was younger, I thought I was a great engineer, but then you kind of, you learn by meeting really great engineers where you actually sit in in the ranking of things. And at Oracle, um, I got to interact with some just people that made me realize as good as I was, like, there was just no path for me to to operate at the level that they operate it just you know sometimes people you meet in your career and they just have a different gear and that's not necessarily a bad thing um i just realized like one i was never going to achieve that level of technical contribution but the other thing i also realized was it was increasingly not the part of the job i loved the most i loved leading projects i loved mentoring our, our more junior developers uh and so uh, my, one of my mentors at the time suggested I make this switch into management. And that's really what kind of made me uh, make that transition. So your manager, were there things that um, as a software engineer were really helpful, but got in the way of you when you were actually a manager um, in that transition? Absolutely. I think that was actually probably the hardest part is often, and I think this is actually something we do very poorly in the industry. It's your best engineers who end up becoming managers, which is interesting because there's not there's not a lot that's related in that skill set of being an extremely strong technical person and being a good manager. And I've, you know, one of the big reasons is being a strong engineer, you have your team for the first time, you have a tendency to want to really do a lot of showing through code and fixing things and keeping your teams from making mistakes which is good to a point, but it's very easy to cross over that line where your team isn't really learning and growing on their own anymore. And they're basically just doing what you tell and you're jumping in and, and dealing, doing, um, solving the hardest problems. And I kind of got a good talking to you from one of my mentors who, who kind of noticed that and said, like, you're just not going to be able to scale and your teams are not going to like working for you if you're always the smartest engineer on the project as well. And that was something I took to heart to really start creating some more space and giving my team some more room to operate, even if things were not necessarily the way that I would have preferred them to be done. Yeah. So you got out of your own way so that you could scale. Got out of my own way and got out of my team's way, right? It's, I mean, yeah. nobody, nobody wants to work in an, I mean, good people want to have a degree of autonomy. They want to feel like they can explore a path. They want to feel you know, that they can invent and they can make mistakes in a supported environment. And I wasn't really doing that as a, as a first time manager. Cool. Um, so how did your management career progress after that? So I stayed at, uh, my first three years were Oracle as a manager, um, had a very, very brief detour at, uh, a large Canadian bank. Um, they'd hired me to be part of their, Renaissance or their technical revolution program, and uh, is one of those situations where the the bill, uh, the, the you know, the posted that role was very different than reality. Uh, I, you know, I remember coming home after my first week and telling my wife, like, this is just not going to work. And and the main reason was my whole career I'd been in the profit center, right? Technology as the profit center, technology as the defining factor of success for the business. 
And despite their desire to change in that bank, it's clear that technology was a cost center. All I was really doing was managing budgets, managing vendors. Like, what well, I wasn't building. But fortunately, uh, one of my friends who was at Amazon at the time reached out and said, hey, like, Amazon's building a Toronto office. Like, do you want to come do this and help build it from scratch? And so I interviewed with Amazon and took a role as one of their first hires in Canada, helping to build out uh, the Toronto uh, Amazon engineering site. Very exciting. Um, what was your journey like with Amazon? And what were the, some of the leading principles that you stepped away from that organization with? Yeah, I, I would say Amazon was probably the most transformative part of my career. And I think you'll find a lot of people who, who will say that. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So almost immediately when I started, we were in what was called uh, Regis is a, a real estate company that runs temporary office space. Uh, before we worked, somehow made that a tech problem, which I, I don't quite understand how that happened. But, um, you know, we were in a temporary space in a mall. Uh, with, you know, next door to us and there was a massage, uh, people running a massage uh, studio. It was a really interesting space. But Amazon, you know, they, they threw us in there and I kind of quickly realized like, okay, what's the plan to building this out? I was kind of waiting for like the directives to come down like at Oracle. Like, okay, this is what you're doing. Here are the rules. But what I realized is there were no rules. There were no directives because Amazon pushes ownership down very deep in the company and expect you to execute and figure things out. Um, very, it can be a very stressful environment from that perspective, but for the right type of person, it's just incredibly empowering. Like they really give you a lot of autonomy and a lot of ownership. And, you know, for all the negatives that people hear about working at Amazon, and I, I wouldn't dispute any of the stories that you hear about people crying at their desks or any of that. It highly depends on the group that you work at there uh, because it is so much a collection of small companies that Anyone that you can work for, can you can have a radically different experience. I happen to work for a great uh, general manager who was running my business, and it was a fantastic environment. And I just got the opportunity to help grow that team in Toronto, eventually expanding into uh, Seattle, uh, taking on teams in Seattle. And the big part for me there was the core values that the company used were really operationalized. I think every company has core values. They're probably written down on a mem, like a brochure or something when you join. You see them and you probably never ever see them or hear them again after that first day. Amazon operationalized their values into every part of the business, whether it was promotions or how you're thinking about a business idea. And those core values I actually took with me for the rest of my career and still to this day really push them and implement them and how I have uh, executed. I've actually directly brought variations of those values to new organizations I've been at. The other area I would say that Amazon really changed me is being an operational leader. Uh, before in my career, we had ops teams. You know, we would build software, there'd be a huge ops organization, they would run it. Amazon was you build it, you run it, which I'm a huge proponent of. And having operational ownership for software, understanding how to do that at scale and with quality was just an incredible experience uh, to get. Cool. There's kind of two parts I'd love to dig into. Could you give an example of one of the Amazon principles beyond the operization and the pushing down ownership? I'd love to hear that. Um, but give me a, one of those kind of like principles or two uh, that you really do embody now. So one is customer obsession. Amazon really starts from the perspective of 
if you do what is best for the customer, even if the sh- in the short term that may not make sense, in the long term, you will win. And you can see that through so many different parts of the business. You know, from a consumer perspective, you think about same day shipping, right? Or next day. Building the infrastructure for that was billions of dollars in fulfillment network capacity and huge loss leader for a long time. However, can anyone live without that today? Like no one competes with Amazon on that, right? Like everyone loves that capability. Uh, so customer obsession and just that focus on if you solve the customer's need, you will, you will win as a company um, is one of the cores. Another one is hire and develop the best. Uh, when I was there, Amazon was in a relentless growth, growth pace, but they intend, they kept a very, very high bar for talent. And uh, there was a program called Bar Raisers where after you'd done a certain number of interviews, you became a bar raiser and a bunch of trials. And the goal is that in every interview loop, there would be one of these bar raisers on the loop. And the bar raiser always came from a different organization. So they had no skin in the game for the hire. Like they weren't under pressure, like, hey, we have to fill this role. And the goal was always to ensure that every person that you hired into the company was better than half of the people in that role. And if you stop and think about for a second, what that means is if you do that for long enough, your team is just getting better and better and better. doesn't mean that the bottom 50% aren't good employees, but they're saying everyone you bring in, you want to be better than half the company so that they can keep pushing that bar higher. And there was just a relentless focus on one, hiring from that perspective, but also developing. Again, if you're in the right organization and they saw your potential, like you would get invested in to get the right opportunities, to, you know, more autonomy, more scope, and more responsibility. It, it was a lot of fun, but like I said, in, in the five, five-ish years I was there, I felt like I did 10 years of work. Right. Good to know. Thank you. Um, so carrying on with your journey, um, you're now at Amazon building um, out the Toronto office. You're at management at a higher level. Tell us about the continuation of that journey. Yeah, so I was a senior manager at Amazon. Uh, I think my organization was probably around 250-ish people across Seattle and uh, Toronto. And Amazon has, uh, at the time anyway, I don't know if this has changed, it had a bit of a glass ceiling if you weren't in HQ. Like if I wanted to make that next step to, in my career at Amazon, it was, you know, my, my leaders told me, it's like, should think about getting you to uh, Seattle. So me and my family were kind of going through that process of relocation and kind of getting that figured out. And I was going to join the last mile engineering group at Amazon uh, to lead a lot of that. And that's the Amazon delivery network, which at the time was just getting off the ground. But in the middle of that, uh, Atlassian reached out about running Jira Cloud in Sydney. And you know, I've always loved Atlassian. Uh, everyone's kind of aware of their culture, developer focus. So my wife said, if we're moving, we might as well go down there and check it out. So flew down to Sydney, uh, met with the founders of Atlassian, a lot of the leadership, and absolutely fell in love with the company. But me and my wife on that trip also realized like it was just not practical for us to move to Australia because once you get on that plane from Toronto and you fly to Vancouver and you have a layover and then you fly to, you kind of realize, wait, every single vacation we have is going to be flying back to visit family. So that's all we would do. But kind of from a more career perspective, the thing that became clear to me is that I could probably have a great four to five year run at Atlassian, but there was no other opportunity in Australia. 
Like it was really clear, right? Like there's Atlassian at that time, and there was really nobody else of any scale um, solving hard computer science problems uh, to work for. And I'd be in a situation to go in there for four or five years. My kids would be getting to high school, and then we'd probably have to rip them out and at that time and bring them back to Canada. And that's something we wanted to do. But when I turned down the role, uh, the CTO uh, there, uh, Shri, who's still one of my mentors and someone I talk to regularly, uh, he said, well, why don't you take over our Austin engineering instead? Uh, and he could, they cautioned me. He's like, there's a lot of problems over there, you know, and it's going to be a bit of a, a fixing situation. And I've always actually kind of liked fixing things. So I was like, yeah, and we loved Austin. So we made the journey, we made the uh, change and moved to Austin in 2016. Awesome. And so describe this role. You've, you had like 200 plus people in like Amazon and you've got this role here. Um, have you got to, I'm guessing you're managing managers at this point as well. Yeah. Uh, Amazon was the first time I started managing uh, other leaders. Mm-hmm. And so the transition from being a manager to managing managers, what was that like? What kind of changes did you have to make in yourself? I think the biggest thing that you do as you kind of make the steps is you have to, as a leader, start designing mechanisms to give structure to your organization and give you visibility. So you you understand what's happening in your org. And I, and I kind of realized that you do have to be structured about it because you want to give your teams kind of operating structure as well. Like if we're going to do a regular weekly metrics review, or if we're going to do a you know quarterly planning, like building those structures out so that you understand what your teams are doing, you understand what their challenges are, where you can help unblock them. But you also at the same time don't want so much visibility all the time such that you know, you're in the weeds of all your teams. And again, kind of similar to my earlier transition to being a manager, you want to give managers a lot of scope to run their team, right? And evaluate them based on that. And it can be hard to do if you do too much of the managing for them. Um, so really building out those structures, you know, how often should you do skip levels, right? Arranging that so you understand the people dynamics and the different sub teams. So as you scale, you just need to build more and more mechanisms, I think, into how you operate and manage your team. Would you have like, so um, like we talked about visibility, could you give us an example of visibility that was really helpful um, to help your managers, but also help you to stay connected to the, your wider team? Yeah, so I, I think one of the big things is project progress, right? Like status reporting is kind of the least favorite thing I think anybody has to do. Um, but at the same time, no, I need to be in a position if I'm talking to an executive and they have a question about what a key project that one of them on my teams is doing, like what is happening? So we built a you know a regular like monthly kind of status reporting framework, a template for how projects can be reported on. We tried to keep it as lightweight as possible. You know, when you're managing managers, I was less interested in like sprint metrics and velocity and stuff like that, because I truly believe those are the metrics that belong to the team and the manager for it to optimize. And I built my mechanisms much more around business impact, delivery, key highlights. Um, I just didn't want my team spending a lot of time, you know, just reporting status effectively. So they liked it because it was lightweight and they weren't constantly reporting on a whole bunch of, you know, things instead of investing in building software and building product. Cool. And then for that's process, what about leadership development? 
How did you grow your managers? Were there common patterns or things that you didn't see to begin with, but you learned later um, to help your leaders grow as well? So that, that was always been and remains a favorite part of my career has been developing other leaders. Uh, I'm in a position now where I've seen multiple of the folks who've worked for me become vice presidents of engineering at different organizations. Um, one is becoming a CTO of a Series B company in the next couple of weeks. So I'm really excited and kind of proud uh, of that as well to see her making that 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 step in her, her career. But the things that I always did was look for opportunities to push my managers, right? And I always, you know, and because because people have done this to me is, you you know, when their plate is full, you know, giving them just a little bit more, just to push them a little bit past that limit of like. Yeah, this is going to be hard, but it's going to force you to create your own mechanisms. It's going to force you to think about how you delegate within your teams. But it's always, I think, you know, finding the right opportunity for growth. And I think as a leader, your biggest responsibility is doing just that. Because if you create the right opportunities, the stretch goals, stretch opportunities for your team that allow them to grow their career, that means your organization is going to be successful. Because if, especially if you tie those things to milestones that align to the business. Cool. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, you're at Atlassian in Atlanta. Um, where where in did you in Austin? Thank you. Um, where did you get to um, Wintrig as an exec role? So that I would really consider Atlassian kind of my first exec type role because uh, I reported directly to the CTO, and there were only five of us reporting to the CTO who ran all of engineering for Atlassian. Um, I would say that that was actually one of the most fun parts of my career for a couple of reasons. One was I got to take all the practices I learned from Amazon and apply them in a new environment that hadn't seen them before. Um, at the time, Atlassian was really making a hard pivot from its on-premise uh, roots to cloud. Uh, that was the mandate of the new CTO um, who was there and it's the reason I was hired as well. I was hired into um, the HipChat organization, which I don't know if anyone remembers HipChat. It was the uh, predecessor to Slack. And uh, things at the time were not going well. Uh, Slack had emerged in the market. HipChat had had some high-profile outages. And they were in the middle of a full rebuild, a full rebuild of the HipChat product. And that was not going well either. Um, There was no head of engineering at the time. And so I kind of stepped into a difficult situation. But... I got to, one, earn the trust of the team, start implementing some of these processes. Uh, it was really exciting to see some of the processes that we implemented around technical operations in particular get pushed to all of Atlassian um, and help just transform how Atlassian did cloud. But it was, it, was a, it was a hard two and a half years, but also incredibly fun because the team was very motivated. Uh, you know, we had this goal that no one thought we could accomplish, even inside Atlassian, no one thought we'd be able to, to get this done. Uh, ultimately, we did get it done. It did not end up mattering because as Microsoft was coming to the market at the time, we had, the company kind of realized that you know this isn't going to be a market that there's going to be a lot of revenue to be made in. It's probably going to end up being free, which is exactly what has happened. And you know, no one pays for this stuff with Office. And I think it's one of the reasons why Slack got sold to Salesforce is they saw their growth opportunities kind of limited in the future, but it was kind of a exciting journey to be on uh, building, not only building the, the new product, but also bringing a lot of the cloud practices I've learned at Amazon 
uh, to Atlassian. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so continue your journey. What happens next? So after we, at the end, towards the end of my Atlassian career, I was managing uh, Stride, HipChat, and Trello. I'd also taken ownership over the, the Trello product. But I kind of knew that there was no real next opportunity for me there. I was reporting into the CTO and like there was no real clear next step. And I got the opportunity to work for uh, Envision as their CTO. And when they approached me about the role, you know, at first I wasn't sure, but as I dug more into it, I kind of realized that one, they were a thousand person remote company. And today that sounds like no big deal, but back in, you know, 2018, they were the largest in doing that in the world and very few companies were remote uh, back then, at least at scale. And so I wanted to understand, you know, how can you do that? Because the biggest challenge that any engineering leader has is finding great talent. And when you're constrained to geographies, that makes it that much harder. So I wanted to understand, like, can this actually work? And as well, they were, uh, you know, a unicorn. They'd just taken a valuation at $2 billion, I think. So, uh, you know, closing in on $100 million in ARR seemed like a great time to join. I joined and uh, as always as you learn is like things are never quite what they seem at any company. I think everyone always goes through, I think you start and you're super excited and there's this kind of trough of disillusionment that you go through and then you come out the other side. And I'd realized that, you know, just because you can hire anywhere doesn't mean you should hire anywhere. Uh, and they hadn't really maintained a high, high bar, I think, for how quickly they had hired and the type of talent. And so it was the largest uh, kind of transformation I had to make in terms of raising the bar on hiring, on talent, uh, while executing on a, a product roadmap that was just too full. There were too many priorities, um, and it was really, really challenging to move that forward. And ultimately, I, I don't know if you saw, Envision officially announced their shutdown here a few weeks ago, which is, I think, the first of many broken unicorns that, that we're going to see. Uh, I learned a lot about focus there and about, you know, being realistic about where you're, where you are. Um, and we just couldn't quite make that last pivot and roadmap that we had to as Figma was, you know, basically just emerging and everyone knows how quickly Figma kind of took over and learned a lot about, uh, what it means to be a fully vertically integrated solution like Figma versus a piece of an ecosystem like Envision was, uh, which made it vulnerable. But incredible opportunity to learn, you know, what it means to be in the CTO seat where you learn for the first time that you really don't have peers anymore. You know, at Atlassian, point to the CTO, I have good friends and who remain my good friends who are my peers who ran the other engineering groups. In your first leadership seat, you realize, you know, you have your CRO, your chief people officer, chief product officer, head of marketing as peers. But you're not really a team in the same way. You're really all stakeholders in each other's worlds and you need things from each other. But I kind of realized that there's a little bit of loneliness to that job because you have people below you who rely on you and you provide leadership to and you have peers who need things from you, but you don't really have uh, teammates in the same way. And it gets, it can, it was surprisingly a little bit more lonely than I expected it would be. Cool. That's a great um, point. So let's dig into that a little bit. When you say, so in, in a sense, what I heard was like you, Atlassian had collaborators who were on your side, helping you be successful, kind of probably being critical friends when needed. And then you have stakeholders. 
What does that feel like? What's the difference between the collaborator and the stakeholder? So I, I think one of the key differences is that, you know, when I had my peers at the last thing, we could just go have a beer and talk about, you know, whatever, even, even if it's talk about the dumb thing we think our boss did, right? Or, 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 or you know, everybody does that. Every, and I'm sure all, all my directs have done the same and, and gone out for a beer and talked about some dumb thing that I said or dumb thing I told them to do, right? That, that kind of comes with the job. But when you're an exec, every interaction almost feel, can feel like an evaluation to a certain extent. Right. Because if you're meeting with the CRO and the CRO needs a feature shift or needs your understanding to make a customer happy, like, you know, that's part of it. And it, it just, it creates that sense of, you know, you're not necessarily just buddies, right? You're, you, you need things from each other. You need to deliver for them. And that's kind of, I think, where that sense of loneliness comes from a little bit. And at that point, my career is also when I realized I had to lean much more into building my network of those people who I'd worked with who were my friends. And I advocate that strongly today to anyone in leadership is like, keep in touch with the good people you work with. Like, you know, go back to them. You know, once you haven't talked to someone in six to nine months, set up a Zoom, like just check in. And one, it's just great to maintain relationships, I believe, especially in this industry, and both from a personal perspective, but also for your career. Uh, you would not believe if you, how it, powerful a tool it is to look at your network, see at all the great places they're at. And you're like, oh, I have a question about so-and-so company. And, you know, I talked to so-and-so last year, but I should reach out to them because I have a question about this company. So that's something I think as we as engineers in particular aren't great at. I think people in the sales, marketing organizations are so much better at it. And I think it is a superpower for engineering leaders to really invest in building and maintaining a network. Awesome. Thank you, Asanka. In terms of you being in a C-suite role, were there other dimensions at this point that you needed to understand that you didn't need to, say, in Alassian, um, that you're now having to learn or that would be helpful for others to know about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as an engineering leader before, it's all about just shipping and delivering products. Um, you know, you have budget around headcount and stuff like that. Once you're the leader of, you know, of a business unit, it becomes a lot more, right? You have to understand, really understand the revenue organization, really understand marketing, understand the customers much more deeply. Like even though you have a product partner, like it's not sufficient for me as like to be just to be the engineering leader who's building stuff. Like you really have to understand how your company works, the financial goals, you know, when are you raising money? Uh, what does your runway look like? What does your burn look like? All these things that I didn't really where I've never really concerned for me as a um, just an engineering leader, but now became front and center, uh, just understanding the business at a much deeper level. And in terms of like working with the board, um, how does that change the game? It, it's really interesting. Um, and I, I've been at board exposure, both in kind of the private world and, and the public world. Uh, in the private side, you know, your board is just uh, effectively the venture firms that have invested, right? That's typically what your board is made up. And, you know, I would say at Envision, you know, the board experience, you know, we were constantly, you know, we present our roadmaps and stuff, but I would say the questions were largely to the revenue team. Um, you know, we got some questions about one product and stuff would ship. 
when I went to the public uh, world with SailPoint, the role I took after Envision, it was very different because now your board members have significant fiduciary responsibility, obviously, in public markets. And it's just the bar is much higher in terms of the questions and expectations they have of you uh, and their responsibility. But you also kind of learn that, you know, what is the relationship I'm supposed to have with the board? And it's actually relatively formal, right? You don't go to the board and tell them everything that's going wrong with the team or your company over beers, right? Like, no, it's, it's, it's a very formal relationship where you talk about the goals and the metrics uh, that you have and just learning those interactions was, was uh, great for me. And now I get the chance to be an advisor uh, to many boards. Uh, one of my upcoming career goals is to, you know, join uh, more boards and start learning to be what it means to actually be on the board side, which I haven't done yet. Cool. So continue your journey onwards. Um, um, what's next? So after Envision, uh, I got kind of, you know, I had a career plan of what I wanted to do. And the next thing was to be the CTO at a public software company. And that's when SailPoint reached out. Um, they are similar to it, very similar to Atlassian, best in breed on-premise identity governance software. Uh, they had a cloud solution, but they were ready to go all in on cloud and make that big push. And so I joined them to help lead that transformation. It was also interesting because at the time, this is in uh, December 2019 that I'm interviewing with them. I'm like, this is great. I'm actually looking forward to getting back into an office as well. Because uh, after being remote for, for about two years in Envision. And then my start date was April of 2020. And as you know, <laughs> obviously, I did not get to start uh, in office. And so it, uh, COVID hit and I but joined and they went fully remote and actually turned out to be very useful that I had two years of experience leading remote engineering teams because now I was forced to lead a remote engineering team again. Great, uh, great culture at the company. And we really just pushed hard on making that pivot from on-premise to cloud. We shifted our hiring strategy, shifted our architecture philosophy about how we're going to invest and just went all in. It was going exceptionally well, uh, so well, in fact, that Toma Bravo noticed, and uh, they uh, they came in and, and acquired us uh, in uh, 2022. Uh, but it was a great journey, we grew that business tremendously. Uh, I think we more than doubled ARR uh, in the time that I was there. I think, and that has continued since, and and in, uh, in the private world. Uh, but it was a great experience to to lead a engineering at a, at a public a software company. So you mentioned already what you um, see as a difference in the public. Were there any other changes in terms of like, yes, you have a formal relationship with the board, you have stakeholders, that's your executive team. From that particular job, were there things that you come away from? Oh, I learned that there. At Silpa, I think I learned the real focus in a public company on quarterly reporting. Um, I mean, when you make commitments and revenue commitments associated with product launches and that goes to the street and to investors, like that's significant, right? Like, you know, it's, it's very, very different. And so I just learned that that pressure can be pretty significant and you have to, as a result, be a little bit more conservative in how you plan your roadmaps and what you announce uh, to both very publicly, because once you announce publicly, like there are revenue implications and, you know, Wall Street, implications of what that means. So learning that ability to be a bit more conservative 
externally, but more aggressive internally was was a little bit different. Okay. And so what's next in your career? So after the SailPoint acquisition, uh, you know, I had a conversation with my leader and, you know, if I wanted to stay on and be in, uh, continue the private equity journey, and it wasn't really for me. Uh, I've always been much more of a builder. Uh, I like to build and explore and private equity is a much more, it tends to be a much more disciplined, financially uh, driven journey. And it just, it wasn't the path that I wanted. So I decided to take uh, some time off. My goal was to take about a year off. Um, I spent a lot of time riding my bike. Uh, went down to Colombia with some good friends of mine, rode bikes in the mountains. Went to the Galapagos with my family. Uh, traveled around quite a bit. Started playing a lot of pickleball. And really just kind of unwound for about six to nine months. It was the first, first break in my career. I mean, I started my career when I was 20. Uh, because when I took that internship, I never actually went back to school full time. I just finished my degree part time and stayed working full time. So I'd been, you know, 23 years without more than probably two weeks off at a, at a time. And, uh, I was looking forward to my first career break. And so I really just kind of disconnected from everything for a while. And just a lot of pickleball, a lot of bike riding, a little bit of travel, skiing. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a good, it was a good, uh, career break. Yeah. And this, um, what were the things you would say that you got from a career break? You got to relax. What other things would you say? Um, do you think career breaks are a good thing? Oh, I, I, I will caveat this in, in a couple of different ways. I think they can be a good thing when they come at the right moment in your career. And when I, when I say that, like for me, it's like financially, it was in a, in a good position where like that wasn't really a concern. Um, my kids were at the right age where like we could, you know, do a bunch more traveling and fun things with them. Um, and that was, was great. And it let me really recover. I mean, I, I didn't really realize like how much kind of the pressure of being in these leadership, you know, successively bigger leadership roles had taken. And I, I didn't realize actually until probably about six or eight weeks into my break about like how tired I actually was. And that I was losing the energy and kind of the excitement around building things. Uh, and so it, it was perfect in that perspective for me uh, to, to get that rejuvenation. I see a lot of things on LinkedIn of folks taking like career breaks, breaks in their early 20s. And maybe I'm just like an old cynic now, but I think that's probably a little bit too too soon. I think you gotta, you got to burn some miles first before, before you do that. Awesome. Thank you. So Galapagos, awesome. Um, what was next in your journey? So the next, I, I wasn't, I had no real plan, um, but kind of backed into two different opportunities uh, through very unlikely paths. So the first was actually through the Galapagos. Uh, we were on a, on a cruise of the islands there, which I highly recommend to do at some point in your life. The wildlife is just incredible. But it was a small boat, probably for 20 people. Uh, and there was another family on that boat. And the father of that family was managing director at New Mountain Capital, a private equity company. You know, he asked me, hey, do you have any interest in ever doing stuff with PE? And I said, no, not really. And then uh, he reached out again later. He's like, why don't you just come meet with us? You know, we, uh, you know we're not like a typical PE. We, we believe in investing and growing. And, and it was true. And so I, I joined them as an executive advisor. Uh, not really a full-time job, but I helped them with due diligence, uh, technical strategy, product strategy. Um, 
great group to be working with. So I started dipping my toe in with that. The other thing that happened was I was playing a lot of pickleball and two uh, guys in my neighborhood had built a pickleball court. And one of my friends knew them and was like, I got to know these guys. I, I want to play on their, their, their private court. And uh, they introduced me and started playing pickleball with them. And they were two of the founders of 8BC um, who had moved from San Francisco to Austin during the pandemic. Uh, the headquarters of the firm had actually moved here. Uh, so Joel Lonsdale was the, was the GP and founder of the fund. And he moved uh, headquarters of the fund here during the pandemic. And after playing with them for a while, they just said, are you going to work again? What are you doing? I'm like, I have no real plans. And so I said, hey, we could use some help with some advisory stuff for some of our companies. So I started dipping my toe, you know, advising some of their companies on portfolio companies on product and engineering. And that kind of has grown slowly and until eventually they said, why don't you join as our portfolio CTO? And ultimately I did, uh, even though, you know, what exactly a portfolio CTO remains uh, a work in progress as we define that. Uh, but the real reason I joined 8VC is, you know, they believe in building companies. They actually incubate, you know, seven to 10 companies a year. And just investing was not something I thought would really appeal to me. And it's still actually really doesn't. Uh, but I really get to get involved with these companies as they're built, uh, help them solve problems. And that's just a lot of fun. So you're now kind of mentoring multiple CTOs and multiple companies. Are there kind of common patterns that you see that CTOs could either be better at or that you see CTOs facing? Yeah, so there's one very emergent topic that's across, I think, most of our portfolio companies. And actually, in my CTO networks, is the question that's coming up more and more uh, than ever in my career is, how productive is engineering? Uh, you know, when resources were plenty and money was plenty, you know, often you'd see companies evaluating CTOs on how quickly they were hiring engineers. Like, that's the success metric. Like, look at how many engineers we hired last quarter. Well, guess what? That is no longer a success metric, I think, for just about any company in the world. Maybe it's a handful where that's still a success metric. But then the questions really started to come of like, okay, we've grown engineering and product this much. What did we get for it? Like, are we going faster? Are we shipping more customer value? And the thing that everybody is struggling with, I think, is we don't really have good frameworks as engineering leaders to report that stuff. Um, you know, we have sprint metrics, we have velocity, but those are, you know, you can't put that in a board slide and say, look, here's our velocity. It's like, it's like, to another, what does that mean? Like, are we better? Are we good? Is it bad? Like, and that is, I think, the com one of the biggest common things I see across our portfolio and other companies, even public companies right now is, how do we get better at answering the question of, how good is engineering? How efficient is it? What does more dollars into engineering and product mean and value to customers? And it can often be difficult because, you know, when I've had CRO partners who have intensely metrics-driven organizations, they're like, look, here's my quota metric. Why don't you give a quota to your engineers? Like, well, it doesn't really work the same way. And, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, but those conversations are becoming more and more real. And I see that everywhere right now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so, like, I guess that feeds in very well to what are you seeing in the current market wider than, say, your portfolio, but what are you seeing in technology? Yeah, um, I think, actually, uh, there's a 
blog post that a, a colleague of mine just pushed out on LinkedIn, which I highly recommend, is talking about the state of venture and how different it is now than it was. Uh, and so when I look broad, I see a few different things happening. One, there is far less funding happening right now for startups. I think it is going to be very challenging for a lot of the later stage, like Series B, Series C's companies that are going out to looking for funding. Uh, it's going to be harder to get checks. I think we're going to see many, many more companies uh, disappear and go under for that reason. Same time, I think it's going to be very exciting at the seed stage. There's a lot of activity there and a lot of good founders. And it's a, it's a focus now, though, on not just, hey, I have an idea. It's like, I have an idea to build a real business. And I think that's, honestly, that's just not something that was there over the last 10 years, especially the last few years. I have an idea to do X. Like, I don't know if you'll ever make money. Great. Here's $10 million, right? Like, that's not really happening anymore. Um, so that, that is a big change that I'm seeing kind of broader. And so I think we'll see venture get smaller uh, in terms of the number of venture firms out there, the number of people employed in venture will get smaller. And I think also just from a product and engineering perspective, I think the valuations for like enterprise software companies, you know, they have come down and people say, oh, they'll go back. And like, I'm not so convinced. I actually think that the valuations now are back to normal and back to where they should be. And I'm actually a little bit excited now because it's kind of going back to the roots of when I started my career of like, you don't have abundant resources. You're going to have to scrap and fight for every dollar and making everything work. And it's going to be a little bit more of a grind. But I think from that, we're going to see the true, really good engineering leaders, the true companies get born. Uh, you know, I always say, and I think it's true that the biggest companies get born during the hardest times. Right. Like if you think about all the juggernauts we have in the industry today, the sales forces, ServiceNow, Workday, like all these guys, they all came out of the dot com crash. That's when they all cut their teeth. Um, and then in 2008, 2009, right? Like that's when you start to have the Googles and all that come to, to play. And I think that's something I recommend everyone think about is these times when things seem the worst is often when the next wave of biggest things are going to be built. And I'm, I'm pretty excited for that. Thank you, Sanka. Is there something that you're working through or digging into and investigating at this time? Obviously, this is going to be a huge shocker. It's AI, right? That is, uh, uh, you know, taking everyone's focus. And, you know, for the first time in over 10 years, I'm actually hands-on playing with this stuff to learn it. I believe that it is going to be as big as the internet was. Like the, that transformation that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, I believe that's what AI is going to do. I disagree with the time scale that most people think it's going to happen. I think already we're seeing companies raise, you know, nine figure rounds on very little ideas. You know, we think sometimes we don't learn from our mistakes and you see that happening. But I think what is going to happen is there's this period of what right now I think of extreme hype around AI going to be followed very quickly by a period of disillusionment of like, oh, this can't do everything. But over the next two to three years, I do expect it to change the world. I just think right now, everyone's expecting too much of it too soon, but it is going to come. It's, it's very clear that it's going to change how we build software. It's going to change how I think every service gets delivered. It's going to change education. Um, I think it's the most important area to invest in learning and having a foundation right now. Yeah, I concur. It's um, 
this is like an industrial revolution for, as you say, moving us to the next step. Thank you for sharing your journey. Um, so just checking in, what are the things that have helped you grow or scale as you have? You mentioned earlier that mentors, um, you mentioned kind of community, um, there may be books, podcasts, but what would you recommend to either prospective CTOs or CTOs now as a source or recon of intelligence? So again, once you get to the CTO level, I really do believe it's about networking. Uh, both peers, so people who are dot solving and dealing with similar problems to you, but also maintaining a few people that have gone further than you that you can go to for advice. And I was really lucky to have kind of those people throughout my career, um, just a few steps ahead on the path than you, so they they can give you that that, that feedback. And but I, I believe as a CTO, that is just absolutely the way you have to do it. You have to invest in building and network of people that you can reach out to and rely on. But also you have to pay that forward, right? A big part of my belief is like anytime somebody asks me for help, I do my best to say yes, because I think that all comes back to you at some point. Like I don't, that's not why I do it, but I do believe that, you know, doing your best to help people, it, it ultimately will come back to you uh, down the road. And so as much as you look out to build your network, someone reaches out to you to ask you a question for something or some career advice, are about the time. You don't know when that pays dividends for you down the road and you are going to need to do that yourself. So, Awesome. Thank you, Saka. So you've described a lot of what you've done. What do you do for fun? Um, so I have two boys, uh, two teenage boys that keep me pretty busy. But outside of that, um, pretty athletic, uh, like, you know, weightlifting, running. I was a huge cyclist for a long time. I've been off the bike for a little while. Uh, had tendonitis in my elbows, you know, getting old. These All these injuries start to creep up a little bit, but uh, I'm a big cyclist. Uh, also love snow sports, uh, snowboarding. Um, wake surfing is, is, a, is a big hobby of mine. And then just movies and kind of, kind of all the typical stuff. Um, endurance sports is another one. I did uh, Grand Canyon, the rim-to-rim hike. It was supposed to be rim to rim to rim, but when we got to the far side and the prospect of going back another 26 miles, we decided we were, we'd rather just go get a beer. Um, but yeah, but that's pretty much uh, what, I, what I do for fun. Uh, Is there a movie you're looking forward to? You know what? I have been really disappointed in movies lately. I just saw Godzilla Zero. I don't know if, you, if you've seen that. It was fantastic. It is, it's, uh, it's hard to describe, but it's like a low-budget movie. But Godzilla is in it, but is not a Godzilla movie. It's more about the Japanese struggle during World War II. Absolutely fantastic. But in terms of anything coming up, like I used to be so hyped for all the Marvel stuff, and I don't know if it's just me or like, but we kind of got this fatigue level where we just kind of have all of a sudden stopped watching all of it, like all the shows on Disney Plus. We were like. Oh yeah, we haven't even looked at Disney Plus in a while. Like, I think we got the peak Marvel, but outside of that, I'm trying to think of any. Oh, a Jordan Peele's new movie, uh, Monkey Man, uh, looks really good. It's, um, I think it's an action movie set with uh, Dev Patel from uh, Slumdog Millionaire. So that one looks pretty good. I, I am looking forward to that. Awesome. I'm looking forward to Dune too. Um, I love expansive science fiction, but Asaka, thank you very much for your time today and for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom. 
greatly appreciate it. Yeah, it was great being here. Thanks for having me. Calling all startup technologists. Have you ever dreamed of hosting your own podcast, but don't know where to start? Well, here's your chance to shine. We're thrilled to introduce Beyond the Program, our exclusive mini-series, and we want you to be a part of it. As tech leaders and mentors, you'll get the exclusive opportunity to become a guest host right here on the Pair Program podcast. Share your expertise, insights, and stories with our audience of startup-focused technologists. Excited? We knew you would be. To be considered, head over to myhatchpad.com backslash contribute. Fill out a brief form and submit it our way. Let's co-create something amazing together. Don't miss this chance to elevate your voice and expand your personal brand. Visit myhatchpad.com backslash contribute.